It's 4th of July weekend, 1895. A crowd is watching while five women ride their bikes around an outdoor track. The women dismount and face the judges. But don't be fooled by appearances. These women aren't racing. Women aren't allowed in bike racing. No, these women are being judged on their fashion. That day, the judges astounded the crowd by awarding the first prize to Kitty Knox, a 20-year-old seamstress and expert long-distance cyclist. There were cheers mixed with hisses of disapproval. Kitty's creation was both practical and morally reprehensible. What was Kitty wearing? Pants. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today. In the 1890s, a bicycle craze swept across the United States. The new safety model, which is more or less the bike model that we still ride today, had just become available. And thanks to its being much cheaper and easier to ride than the previous models, everyone jumped on the bandwagon. Soon, cyclists filled parks, streets, and country roads. Cycling schools and clubs popped up all over the place. Churches saw a downturn in attendance because Sundays were the only free day for many working people to ride. Cycling had become a public obsession. As the craze took hold, one big question was at the forefront of every woman's mind. What should I wear? To understand this, let's talk about wardrobe malfunctions. If you've ever had one, it probably involved ripping, tripping, or exposing something that you didn't want exposed. And while our worst wardrobe malfunction is a memory we would all like to forget, chances are that Victorian women have worse stories to tell. In the latter half of the 19th century, clothing issues were a dime a dozen. Women, especially those from the upper classes, were weighed down by tens of pounds of petticoats and skirts. Breathing was difficult because they were cinched in so tight by their corsets. Everyday movement was a challenge. So fainting and tripping were a daily occurrence, and catching horse manure up under your skirt when you crossed the street passed for a regular Tuesday. It was basically the 19th century version of getting toilet paper stuck to your shoe. But in the 1890s, there was suddenly a new wave of wardrobe malfunctions, and this time they were especially dangerous. Victorian women got caught up in the cycling hype, but when they hopped on their shiny new bikes, they found that their clothes just got in the way. Their skirts either obstructed their view of the pedals or got caught and tangled up in the wheels. Newspapers regularly reported women being seriously injured or even killed in cycling accidents that were caused by their cumbersome clothing. For example, the Daily Press reported the fatal crash of a female cyclist that was believed to have been caused when the woman's skirt obscured her view of the pedals. She died a week after the accident. The Rational Dress Gazette reported the story of a woman who died in 1899 after losing control of her bike while rolling down a hill. Apparently, her dress had gotten tangled in the pedals. As more and more women began cycling, it became apparent that these incidences were just going to keep happening. Enter Kitty Knox. 
As I said, Kitty was an expert long-distance cyclist. She was known for consistently placing as a finalist in 100-mile co-ed races. And when she wasn't the first contestant, male or female, to finish the race, she was often the first woman across the finish line. But Kitty upset the system with more than just her clothes. She was born in 1874 in Boston to a white mother and a black father. And though Boston was much more integrated than many areas of the United States at that time, segregation was still enforced. But what was a bit different was that neighborhoods in Boston could be micro-segregated, meaning that individual buildings were designated for one race or the other, but that people with different racial backgrounds could live in buildings right next to each other. This, of course, ended up encouraging people with different racial backgrounds to spend time together more than an entirely segregated neighborhood would have. As a working-class woman, Kitty would have saved up for some time to buy her first bike. To put things into perspective, during the 1890s, the average income was about $500 per year, and for many women, wages were far below that. At that time, safety bicycles cost anywhere from $50 to $125, roughly $1,400 to $3,600 today. But after Kitty finally bought her first bike, she got involved in the Riverside Cycling Club, which participated in rides, parades, parties, and balls with other cycling clubs. Now, at this time, cycling was represented and regulated by an organization called the League of American Wheelmen. Kitty was a member of this league, but in 1894, with a push from Southern members, non-white cyclists were forbidden from joining. This would bar non-white cyclists from participating in many cycling activities, and this change received a lot of resistance from Boston cyclists, both black and white. But the tricky part was that there were a number of non-white card-holding members of the league already, so whether this new restriction actually applied to them was both unclear and contested. And it was in the face of this discrimination that Kitty displayed her awesomeness yet again. Shortly after the passing of this color bar, as it was called, there was a league meet in Asbury Park, just outside of Boston. And despite the new restriction from Kitty attending, she showed up anyway. Now, there are several differing accounts of what actually happened when she got there. According to one newspaper, she entered the clubhouse, presented her league member ID, and was refused entrance. In another version of events, she was simply allowed into the meet with no issues at all. But whatever actually happened, she made a stand. She was already talked about often in the press for her impressive cycling record and for her fashion, and now she was talked about again, but this time for standing up against discrimination. And Kitty continued riding her bike, attending events, and showing off her fashion-forward outfits. Which brings us to that 4th of July fashion competition. Now, Kitty would have seen the pitfalls of regular Victorian clothing, and as a seamstress, knew just what outfit would let her ride comfortably. When Kitty won that fashion contest, she was wearing a gray knickerbocker suit. So knickerbockers are essentially loose-fitting pants that end just below the knee. From the knee down, she wore boot covers that buttoned down the side of her calf, and her suit jacket had huge puffed sleeves. From today's vantage point, this doesn't seem like a big deal, but let me tell you, for a Victorian woman to be wearing pants, it was a big dang deal. Victorian women were assumed to have legs, not that anyone ever saw them. There were virtually no socially acceptable opportunities for women to dress in a way that would show their true shape. Even when swimming, women wore dresses, and they were often segregated from men when they swam. 
Remember that Victorian women, especially upper-class women, lived really insular, homebound lives. They were expected to focus on their homes, childbearing, and childrearing. That's it. And they rarely circulated outside of a small geographic and social sphere. And when they did go out into the world, they had to be chaperoned by a family member. A woman wearing pant-like garments in public pinched a big, fat nerve in society. Pants were so associated with masculinity that a woman inching her way toward more masculine characteristics by wearing knickerbockers made her look subversive, misplaced, and anathema to her natural role. Therefore, the ideal Victorian woman was not a cyclist. She was not athletic, and she didn't spend much time outside of her home. She was the supportive childbearer. Not long before the cycling boom, doctors actually argued that any type of physical activity could jeopardize a woman's ability to have children. And of course, the ability to reproduce superseded any other quality that a woman might bring to the table. A huge barrier to women cycling at that time was the pervasive fear that they would somehow damage their pelvic organs by riding a bike. Let's remember that this view was held at a time when women's health was pathologized relentlessly. Women who didn't conform to social or gender norms were vulnerable to a diagnosis of hysteria, which could set off a chain reaction of oppression and inhumane treatments. So allow me to go down a terrifying line of thought for just a second. So the Victorian era, from the 1830s to just after the turn of the 20th century, was not particularly kind to women, as I'm sure you can tell. I mean, let's be fair. The previous eras hadn't really been kind to women either, but what was especially alarming about the Victorian era was its medical oppression of women. As we know, Victorian women were allowed to be one thing, quiet, long-suffering, nurturing caretakers. Any deviation from this was a one-way ticket to a hysteria diagnosis. Hysteria was absolutely weaponized during this period. A woman could be labeled hysterical if she disagreed with her husband, if she exhibited behavior deemed to be too sexually forward, or if she were suffering from postpartum depression or anxiety, or if she was just seen as too emotional. If a woman was labeled as hysterical, she could be subjected to a number of treatments either at home or within an asylum. For example, the rest cure was a popular one. Hysterical women were sometimes condemned to a level of rest that I could see actually causing the mental health problems that it claims to cure. Famously, a woman named Charlotte Perkins Gilman criticized this treatment in her short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, where she tells the story of a woman who was forced to bed rest by her husband, who was a physician. With nothing to do all day but stare at the yellow wallpaper, she ended up descending into a mental breakdown brought on seemingly by the lack of interaction, exercise, and stimulation. In reality, Gilman herself was prescribed the rest cure to treat her own postpartum depression, which almost drove her into a mental health crisis. She ended up quitting the treatment and leaving her husband. On the other hand, asylums of the time were often filled with women who either had no mental health issues at all or who suffered from things like depression or anxiety. Many asylums, especially public institutions, were often cold, unsympathetic places where health declined rather than improved. A well-known journalist named Nellie Bly purposefully got herself institutionalized in 1887 in order to do some investigative reporting on what really went on within asylums. She met many women with either no or minor mental health issues, and those who had severe mental health struggles were treated very poorly, to say the least. She was given inedible food, was constantly cold, was made to do manual labor, and experienced physical violence and threats from the staff. 
And on top of that, she made a point to not exhibit any behavior associated with mental illness once she had been admitted to the asylum. But no matter how many times she told her physician that she was not insane, he wouldn't believe her. And one of the more insidious aspects of this system is that women were often put into asylums by the men in their lives, and therefore could often only be taken out of the institutions by those same men. So for people who already had little self-determination in the world, being institutionalized removed all freedom. This, unfortunately, was the reality for too many Victorian women who were either diagnosed as hysterical or institutionalized during that period. And though the majority of women didn't experience this degree of treatment, the fear of it must have hung over them. But for day-to-day life, living within such strict parameters around what was deemed acceptable female behavior, coupled with an imposed, insular, static, non-stimulating lifestyle, was genuinely unhealthy for any human being, both physically and mentally. It was a common belief at that time that women had a limited supply of energy, and that physical strain could be detrimental to her ability to reproduce. So yet again, it all goes back to the belief that a woman's real worth was equal to the quality of her reproductive system. And there was a widely held belief that there was some kind of medical link between a woman's brain and her womb. In other words, all her brain and physical power were being sucked dry by those demanding ovaries. To counteract concerns over reproductive health, some bicycle manufacturers raise the handlebars on women's bikes to make them sit straighter up and toward the back of the seat, and others actually developed special seats for women with smaller peaks in front, or no peak at all. Gotta protect those lady parts. But despite the pearl-clutching of many men and women about the imaginary dangers of bicycles, a significant number of women eagerly embraced the social and physical benefits of cycling. On bikes, women inhabited public spaces like never before. They went out into social and geographic areas that were previously only taken up by men. And equally important, they explored these spaces unchaperoned. Bicycles made constant chaperoning particularly difficult, Suddenly, women got a taste of independence they had never experienced before, and they liked it. The uninhibited freedom that cycling provided women did bring with it a fear that the rigid social barriers that preserved female virtues would be put in jeopardy. Because, of course, women couldn't be trusted when left to their own devices. As a working-class woman, Kitty would have been subject to less rigid social constraints separating the sexes for various reasons. First of all, a working-class woman would be required to interact with men and move in spaces that were considered more male-oriented just to go about her daily life, going to work, shopping for food, paying bills, etc. In contrast, the affluence of upper-middle-class women and the wealthy allowed them to pay other people to do those types of things for them. And therefore, the more financially affluent the woman, the smaller and more insular her world would become. And of course, that social communities tended to involve people of similar economic means just reinforced this position for women, since the other women around them weren't venturing into those spaces either. But as Kitty started out riding her bike in parks, on country roads, and in city streets, the social pressure to maintain ladylike decorum would have been overwhelming. Clothing was the most basic social representation of the separation of men and women in the Victorian era. Men's clothing of the time, while tight and restrictive in its own way, was not designed to hide the shapes of their bodies. Women's clothing not only hid their true shapes, but the restrictiveness of the clothes they wore reinforced women's ornamental status in a male-dominated society. 
upper-class men's clothing needed little adjusting for bike riding. They more or less threw on their exercise clothes and hopped on the bike. But for women, the clash between their skirts and the bikes was a disaster. Bikes were initially designed with male riders in mind. The generic model is a diamond-framed bike with a high center bar. This high center bar posed one of the biggest challenges to women trying to ride. How are the women supposed to ride with their skirts draped over that bar, riding up their legs and showing an obscene amount of ankle? Bike manufacturers soon came up with a drop bar bike to accommodate women's skirts, meaning that the center bar swooped down to let women's skirts fall naturally and still cover up their legs. But the drop bar made the bike much heavier, which was yet another impediment to women cycling comfortably. And even with a drop bar and protective wheel and chain covers, women's skirts were still vulnerable to getting tangled. Kitty Knox was by no means the first woman or female cyclist to wear pants. Throughout the 19th century, a dress reform movement had been simmering under the surface. The movement advocated for the acceptance of more, quote, rational clothes for women. Clothes that would allow them to move, sit, and lay down more freely and comfortably. Women had gotten sick and tired of being burdened by their clothes. For decades, groups of women had been pushing for social acceptance of more practical clothes. And this was called the Rational Dress Movement. In 1855, Amelia Jenks Bloomer wrote an article defending her decision to wear bloomers. Loose-fitting pants that gathered at the knee or ankle under a calf-length dress. Think pajama pants on steroids. Bloomer was both praised and ridiculed for her fashion choice. Exposing the shape of women's legs, no matter how baggy the pants or how long the dress, pinched that societal nerve so much that by the 1890s, bloomers and knickerbockers were still a fringe trend that was dripping with social baggage. The bicycle craze brought the decades-old dress reform movement to a boil. Suddenly, many more women began looking for clothing alternatives to be able to cycle safely and comfortably. There was a wide range of cycle wear that emerged from this moment. Some assert that these new fashions completely revolutionized the way that women dressed. They didn't. Women's clothes didn't change so dramatically until the 1920s, but what they did do was to move the needle forward by getting exponentially more women into comfortable clothes and by getting people thinking more about a shifting female image. Adapting women's clothing for cycling had profound implications about gender roles, identity, and power. And what type of cycling clothes a woman chose to wear indicated a lot about her views on women's liberation. More conservative women who had no interest in upsetting the established traditional gender roles and dynamics, or the men in their lives wouldn't allow them to, only shortened their skirts to the ankle or calf length for cycling. One of cycling's biggest advocates, Mary Sargent Hopkins, staunchly defended women maintaining feminine graces while cycling. She gave public demonstrations on how to ride like a lady and believed that a slightly shortened skirt would solve the cycling dress problem. At the center of the spectrum were women who were looking to cycle more easily and comfortably, but who wanted to adhere to social norms as much as possible. These women could choose from a range of inventive, convertible cycling outfits. Now, these convertible skirts were pretty cool, and in many cases, they were invented by women. For example, some outfits might look like a normal skirt until a line was pulled that cinched the skirt up. In one pattern, the skirt was simply shortened, while in another, the skirt could be cinched up around the cyclist's waist to reveal bloomers underneath. 
Another option was to wear a divided skirt, what appeared to be a regular shortened skirt, but was actually two baggy divided legs. And at the radical end of the spectrum were women like Kitty Knox, who believed that cyclists should be able to just wear pants and get it over with. Unfortunately, society didn't always agree. There were actually both social and physical dangers for women who dared cycle in bloomers. This usurping of a symbol of male power created an environment where bloomer-clad women faced the possibility of both physical and verbal abuse every time they stepped onto the street. Women in rational dress were subjected to catcalling and jeering, and some were on the receiving end of rocks and sticks launched in their direction. Police officers issued citations to women in rational dress for, quote, masquerading in male attire. Businesses also reacted by banning bloomer-clad women from their establishments. In response to the banning of rationally dressed women from an inn in Dorking, England, a reader of the Daily Mail wrote in to say, To the proprietor of the White Horse Hotel, Dorking, earns the thanks of all lady cyclists for the plucky stand he has taken. We now know where we can take our sisters and other people's sisters without fear of being sickened by the sight of these middle-sex women, who are neither true ladies nor true gentlemen. Three cheers for him. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why Kitty Knox not only wearing pants, but actually winning a fashion competition with them was so significant. Reporting on the competition, the Waltham Daily Free Press said, Five wheel women were ambitious to secure the prizes offered in the costume contest and rode their mile around the track. The judges awarded the first prize to Miss Kitty Knox, who was attired in a gray knickerbocker suit. That Kitty won was quite astounding and a testament to her seamstress skills, given the animus in some quarters, against women of the time wearing anything but skirts, and long skirts at that. Now, the power of clothing cannot be underestimated. Clothes can influence the life we live and the opportunities we take. Clothes can indicate what work we do, what lifestyle we live, and dictate the movements we're able to make. Kitty Knox and female cyclists like her knew they had an innate need to move and unapologetically asserted their right to do so comfortably and safely. Now, the good fight for fashion has come a long way, but it's still not over. Women's clothing is still more scrutinized than men's today on the red carpet, in offices, in schools, and on the street. This is partly due to the choices that are available, but is also due to the culture that serves women's bodies up for visual public consumption. In the Victorian era, women were ornaments to society, and their big, heavy, pretty clothing was the topping that made those ornaments ready for public consumption. Today, though to a different degree, women are often still ornaments to society. Now, the positive thing is that women today can be more than just that. And with every non-traditional fashion choice we make that allows us to move and exercise and take control of our own bodies, the better we become. Once Victorian women got a taste of the freedoms that came along with cycling, they continued to reach for new opportunities. They forged ahead into social and geographic territories that had previously been inaccessible to them. As a vehicle for both movement and liberation, the bicycle became synonymous with female independence. In 1897, a crowd had gathered near Cambridge University to protest a proposal to allow full and equal degrees to female students. As part of their protest, they displayed the effigy of a woman on a bicycle wearing bloomers from a bookshop window. 
that the protesting students responded with an effigy of not just a female student, but a woman on a bicycle in rational dress speaks to the symbol that bicycles had become for women's liberation. It epitomized the claim that women were making to public spaces in cycling and in education. In the end, the resolution didn't pass, and women would have to wait until 1947 to be granted full and equal degrees at Cambridge. But still, the needle was moving forward. In 1896, American civil rights leader Susan B. Anthony wrote, I think the bicycle has done more to emancipate women than any one thing in the world. I rejoice every time I see a woman ride by on a bike. It gives her a feeling of self-reliance and independence the moment she takes her seat. And away she goes, the picture of untrammeled womanhood. Kitty Knox was the embodiment of untrammeled womanhood. She continued riding and making a mark on the cycling world until she died of kidney failure in 1900. A fierce competitor, she surmounted not just gender, but also racial barriers to show other riders, men and women, what a female rider could be. So whenever you see a bike, in the park, on the street, or in your garage, remember that it was once not only a vehicle of transportation, but a vehicle of women's liberation. And now it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. One of my favorite books that I read about this period in cycling history was called Wheels of Change by Sue Macy. This book is short, sweet, and filled with pictures. It's an awesome entry into the topic and really paints a picture of the time, the clothing, and what it meant for a Victorian woman to hop on a bicycle. So if you're looking for a dynamic read about this period that has lots and lots of pictures, I highly recommend Wheels of Change. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.